to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the mother of the world. Not Gaia. Oh, so not not the character from Captain Planet? No, no. We're talking about cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead. And Caroline, of course, we both knew who Margaret Mead was. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's one of the most important women of the 20th century, one of the most important academics and thinkers and speakers. But I didn't know that much about her, you know. And really her impact. Yeah, I had no idea either how far-reaching her impact was, both in terms of of sexuality, she focused a lot on sexuality, but also gender roles and the way that Western society maybe doesn't do it right in terms of uh, raising their adolescence. Yeah, and, and there were and are still academics who raise an eyebrow at her methodology mm-hmm. and the way she approached her studies and then applied them to social issues of the time. But in terms of women trailblazers and who... I mean, she, she was one of those people who just seemed... So singularly focused Mm -hmm. on her place in the world and so unconcerned with what other people thought about her. Oh, yeah. I mean, she pursued with the greatest thirst knowledge about everything around her. And I mean, as we'll talk about that, that's essentially how she was raised. She was raised to just watch and observe and take notes on the world around her. And Caroline, she fascinates me down to her signature wardrobe Mm -hmm. because she not only had this sort of signature bob haircut that she wore, but she also always wore a cape and walked with a stick, a forked stick, mm-hmm. uh, because she like twisted her ankle, I think, when she was uh, not that old, and just like kept walking with it. And in 1969, Time magazine described her as, quote, looking like a cross between a stern school marm and an impish witch, <laughs> which is fantastic. Yeah, it's so funny. If that were anyone else, I would think that was a negative description. But, I mean, I think she's so fantastic, and I don't know what time meant necessarily with that tone, but she is great, and she had an incredible look to her, which was just as unique as she herself was. And one of her most famous quotes that does reflect her worldview in a lot of ways uh, is very much kindred to stuff Mom Never Told You's ethos. So she once said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Um, so who was she, though? We mentioned anthropology. So she was, yes, an anthropologist. She was a leading academic of her day, male or female. She did not like being described as a leading female thinker because she was, I mean, among the best. And she was an intellectual instigator of the sexual revolution and also second wave feminism. Yeah, and she sought to apply her background and focus in anthropology and social science to solving issues like childhood education and also mental health. Not everybody loved her. There were certainly people who took issue with her from her own time 
up to now and who have tried very hard to discredit her and her research. But she has contributed a lot to our understanding of other cultures, our understanding that the West is not the best, that different cultures can be equally as great, but just different. Yeah. And and looking back at everything that she did, especially in the second half of her life, she just comes across as so endlessly curious, constantly absorbing new knowledge and then spreading it back out into the world. So the New York Times noted in her obituary that the American Natural History Museum once listed her specialties as, quote, education and culture, relationships between character structure and social forms, personality and culture, cultural aspects of problems of nutrition, mental health, family life, ecology, Echistics, transnational relations, national character, cultural change, and culture building. So, I mean, not much. Not much. Just, yeah. Just a cursory knowledge of a couple things. Yeah, well, I love it because in descriptions of her, it's often mentioned just how often she lectured. She would deliver a ton of lectures every year, and they were always on wildly different topics. And there was even a quirky note, I think, was it in her New York Times obituary, that uh, she delivered so many lectures so often, and was also just so well-versed in so many diverse topics, that she might show up at, like, a men's luncheon or something, and talk about the sexual habits of a certain culture. She would get some of her topics mixed up, just because she was like, I'm on a train and a plane to some other city now. Oh, yeah. She delivered the sexuality talk to like a clergy group <laughs> and got it mixed up. Um, but she would even lecture on like very esoteric subjects about the particular linguistics of this small cultural group in the South Pacific. But she could go on and on and on and was very engaging. Yeah, somebody was saying that, oh, they raised a hand and asked a question about this one group's use of a certain type of nut in their in their diet. And she talked about it at such length that you would have thought that that was her main academic focus in life. I mean, TLDR, I'm jealous of Margaret Mead's brain. I know. Period. <laughs> and she was also astoundingly prolific. She wrote over 20 books, co-authored even more, and uh, some of the titles include 1928's Coming of Age in Samoa, which is her, probably her most famous book. Uh, she also wrote in 1935, Sex and Temperament in Three Primitive Societies, which we'll talk about more. Uh, she also wrote in 1949, Male and Female, A Study of the Sexes in a Changing World, which Betty Friedan would have a thing or two to say about. And then in 1972, her autobiography was Blackberry Winter. Yeah, so poetic. But she herself was very poetic. Some of the first stuff, some of the first writing that she published was literally poetry. I mean, she was she could do it all. And so much of that is because of her incredible background. Well, and Caroline, speaking of poetry, I think it's time to let our listeners know about where she came from. So, in West Philadelphia, 1901... There were some Quaker parents having some fun. And that's all we've got, listeners. But we got really excited when we realized that we could do the Fresh Prince theme for just the first (laughs) half line of her bio. Yeah, so she... No, she literally was born in, in Philadelphia. Two Quaker parents. And side note, I mean, I might 
go back to this after we get out of the studio and really try to <laughs> flesh it out. Um, yeah. So, listeners, if you if you'd like me to <laughs> to do some old school women's history raps. Oh, they do. Let us know. I can hear them screaming. Yes. Um, but she was born, like you said, to Quaker parents who were also social scientists. Her dad, Edward, was an economist, and Emily was a social reformer and suffragist. And she was really a true child of the progressive era. And she was the oldest of five, although one of her sisters, Catherine, died at nine months, which was really devastating for her because she actually named that baby. Yeah, I, side note, love the Quakers. I told Kristen this and she gave me a look like, what are you talking about? I didn't know this about you. <laughs> yeah, I love the Quakers because A, I do have a lot of Quakers in my ancestry. B, oatmeal. B, <laughs> B, oatmeal, which, oh, I just can't like oatmeal. I'm sorry. But C, um, the Quakers are just an incredible force in American history. And I, I am fascinated by how so many of our early abolitionists and feminists and suffragists came out of the abolition movement. And so here we have, I was so delighted to see that she also came out of this tradition. And anyway, I think her family dynamics are fascinating too and so sweet for instance her dad nicknamed her punk and when her little brother richard came along she became the original punk not girl punk he in fact was called the boy punk yeah and and about that mead wrote quote a reversal of the usual pattern according to which the girl is only a female version of the true human being the boy, which sounds a lot like what we've talked about on the podcast before in terms of the male being the kind of the baseline normal. But here's the thing, though. Her dad, super cute that he called her the original punk, but he was still a man of his generation as well. He once commented that it was too bad that she was a girl because he had really had high hopes <laughs> to, you know, have a, a really impressive child. Um but, you know, she would go on to, to prove him wrong in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And helping in that early development was her dad's mother, Martha Adeline Ramsey Mead, who helped raise her while her mom pursued her own studies and research. And her grandmother sounds like a fascinating character because she thought that being cooped up indoors was terrible. And she had the kids go out a lot and observe the outdoors, observe nature. And so this was also a true part of the progressive era about worrying about urban children being locked up inside for too long and being separate from nature. And while Margaret and her siblings' formal education was a little bit spotty, they only went to school occasionally, uh, they did rely on... Martha, their grandmother, and local artists to instruct the kids in everything from writing and observation and research to art, sculpture, drawing. I mean, these were pretty well-rounded kids. And one thing that her mom and grandmother both tasked Margaret with doing was taking notes on her siblings development because they were all about notes of like tracking, you know, what time they were feeding, how they were sleeping, what they were doing. And this really laid the foundation for future anthropological research. I mean, all the field notes that Margaret would take throughout her professional life and the Library of Congress 
has a lot of these childhood notes. And I thought it was so funny that, I mean, part of the reason why she also took notes was because the family moved a lot, apparently. So she would write down addresses and sort of like who was around and where they were to keep up with all of that. Uh, but when it came to just keeping a personal diary, she wasn't as great at it. But when it came to just, you know, taking, keeping tabs on mm-hmm. how her siblings' diets were progressing. She yeah. was great. Well, and and that's something that her mother had done, too, when she was pregnant with Margaret. She tracked everything that she felt and experienced while she was pregnant, and then that continued after Margaret was born. She would keep notes on how her daughter was developing. So this was definitely a family of social scientists. So in 1920, uh, Margaret has already started college. She started out at DePaul University didn't really like it and transfers to Barnard and she skips around a little bit. She starts off as an English major and then goes into psychology and then ends up in anthropology after taking a class with Franz Boas, who's considered the father of anthropology. And thankfully, and also delightfully, a critic of social Darwinism and eugenics. So, Which was surprisingly rare for a guy like that at the time. Yeah, super rare in that era. Yeah, eugenics was horrifyingly popular. Yeah, for sure. Um, but Boas's research assistant was a woman named Ruth Benedict, and they really, together, Boas and Benedict, lit a fire in Mead, not only just for anthropology, but to document remote cultures that hadn't been touched by industrialization. Um, and because, you know, the idea is, you know, westernization comes along and kind of just destroys cultures in its wake. And so she ends up studying under Boaz for her master's and Ph.D. at Columbia. And Boaz, being her mentor, thought that Mead should study Native American adolescence. But Mead was like, sorry, I've got this whole thing of like traveling my own path and doing what I want. So she ends up going to Polynesia and she focuses on Samoan culture. So from 1925 to 1939, she studied seven cultures around Polynesia and Indonesia, focusing especially on how culture shaped adolescent development. And out of this, some of our earliest ideas about this whole thing we talk about all the time on Stuff I Never Told You called gender roles. Delicious. Delicious, tasty, piping hot gender roles comes out of this. And Mead was especially interested to find out whether the pain of adolescence, and especially female adolescence, was nature or nurture. So in 1928, she publishes this little book you might have heard of called Coming of Age in Samoa. And for the most part, it is your basic field study of these young Samoans and how they're growing up. But there are, I think it's like two chapters where she really focuses in on sexuality. And she came to a pretty radical conclusion, right? Yeah, she freaked everybody out because she said that, hey, your adolescence doesn't have to be this period of neuroticism. You don't have to be so worried about everything and so repressed. And she says that, look, look at these Samoan girls. They're having a great time in adolescence and they're not dealing with the neuroticism of American youth. 
because they're not as bound to restrictive gender roles as American girls are, but also the idea that premarital sex and extramarital sex wasn't a huge deal. Adolescents were permitted to experiment, so to speak, but not so much experimenting and like getting freaky, just like allowing themselves to explore their developing sexuality. Yeah, without that risk of slut shaming. And she really painted that idea of exploration versus repression as a part of healthy development. And this book was hugely popular and really put her on the map. But as we'll get into a little bit later, the fanfare wouldn't always be so favorable. Um, but she continues her work. I mean, she this book, Coming of Age in Samoa, was more of the, the layman's guide to this. She would also come back and write a more academic take on the whole experience. I mean, she's continually traveling and doing these the, this field research. Um, so in 1935, for instance, she really begins digging into nature versus nurture when it comes to gender roles and temperament for what would become the book Sex and Temperament, which was based on field studies in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, and in her work, she broke ground by separating the ideas of biological sex from culturally constructed gender differences. So drawing that line between, hey, gender is almost inflicted on us, whereas sex is the more biological component. And you can see the groundwork being laid of her cultural determinism that would attract criticism because she really, really, really clung on to this idea and promoted this idea that it's not so much innate differences between men and women, but rather culture's role in shaping these gender roles that separate us. Right. One of the big things that she points out is like, hey, when you look at different cultures and you see that in one culture, men are responsible for this thing. and another culture, the woman is responsible for the thing. But in the culture where the man's responsible for it, that thing, whatever it is, is viewed more highly because the man is doing it. And she said that that's the kind of thing that she found to be true across cultures, not necessarily the actual gender roles that were being filled. So like whether it was the hunting or the cooking or the protecting of the village or whatever, it was the simple fact that when a man does it, it does tend to be more highly valued. Yeah, and and in doing so, she's also laying the groundwork for second wave feminism, not to get ahead of ourselves. But I mean, think about this. This is going on and coming out in the popular press in the 1930s. You know, like, I mean, I can only imagine the reception at the time of someone suggesting this in the United States when gender roles are still just so, so very restricted. Yeah, because this is also the same time that Indiana Jones is going about doing his thing, you know? And so I I bet he probably wasn't necessarily on board with everything she had to say. Do you think they ever crossed paths? I don't know. I mean, maybe I feel like he was more in, like, Germany and the, and the <laughs> Middle East. Well, speaking of Germany, um, so World War II happens like by this point though world war 2 she's already gone to bali and lived there with her third husband and they uh completed this massive visual anthropological collection of over 35,000 photos and film strips which was unprecedented at the time but because of world war 2 uh access to the south pacific is closed off so mead 
And Ruth Benedict, that former research assistant of Franz Boas, found the Institute for Intercultural Studies. And it's also around this time that her fieldwork in those distant cultures begins tapering off. And this is also a point to note that we are going through her biography with a broad brush just because she did so much. Um, but with World War II, her focus and her work really does shift more stateside. Yeah, and so after the war, she does return to Manus Island in Papua New Guinea to study the impact of people's exposure to the wider world thanks to warfare. And this trip ends up informing her beliefs in culture-shaping societal ills like racism and environmental mistreatment. And it ultimately prompts her famous quote that Kristen said about never doubting that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And in this case, it's for better or for worse. So in addition, to founding the Institute for Intercultural Studies and being a university lecturer, she she also became a curator for the American Natural History Museum and a very busy public speaker, like we mentioned earlier. Um, and she would speak at venues like museum talks, but also congressional hearings, late night talk shows, UN summits. She had regular magazine columns in places like Red Book and more. So her voice was everywhere. Right. And I think it is because of stuff like that, that she is such a huge figure. I mean, obviously, she contributed so much to academia and to our understanding of other cultures and sexuality among so many other topics. But it is the fact that she was so accessible that helped. I mean, her books are very readable. And I know that sounds silly to say about a book, but I mean, that's a big deal when you're coming from like an academic perspective. She was in, in incredibly readable, very accessible. And so here's a woman that you might have uh, delivering a speech in a very academic setting, but you're also reading her column in Red Book. Like, my mom reads Red Book, you know, I mean, it allowed a huge swath of the population to become familiar with her and her ideas. Right. Because in a lot of ways, her field studies really fostered what would become activism. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1976, though, she died from cancer and she was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1978, among so many other accolades that she would garner over the years. She was also elected president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which was a huge deal because I want to say she was only the second woman to ever uh, be in that position. And also during her tenure, she did a lot in terms of enacting policies to be more accepting of women and people who were not straight white men. We've talked a lot already about her role in the development of second wave feminism and in changing attitudes towards sex and sexuality. And you better believe that we're going to tell you a lot more about that after a quick break. that Margaret Mead's own mother had been a suffragist, Mead herself did not self-label as a feminist. And like Kristen said, if you called her a female scientist or a female this or that, she wasn't down with the descriptor. She just wanted to be known and appreciated for her work itself. 
But that work did intersect with the whole idea behind second wave feminism since her research focused on how culture shapes gender roles. Yeah, so in 1949, the publication of Male and Female, a study of the sexes in a changing world, uh, was pretty groundbreaking. The New York Times, for instance, hailed, quote, Dr. Mead's book has come to grips with a cold war between the sexes and has shown the basis of a lasting sexual peace. So as we've mentioned a number of times now, she really was laying the foundation for all the conversations that we have today in terms of gender constructs and roles and what that really means and how they play out. Um, now, interestingly, though, Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique, would later criticize her essentialist portrait of motherhood in the book, Male and Female, because, I mean, there were there were some quotes that could raise eyebrows, such as, quote, Differences in sex as they are known today are based on the bringing up by the mother. She is always pushing the female toward similarity and the male toward difference. So I could see how Ferdan might say, hey, that's an unfair generalization. Although Ferdan considered herself an heir to Margaret Mead's research and legacy, right? Yeah, there was a quote about how uh, she had done her part to further feminism, or she had taken feminism as far as she could, and so Friedan saw herself as the heir to Mead's work, which I think is funny that she's putting that on herself. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite a statement to make, um, and and unfortunately Margaret Mead, you know, didn't live long enough to really be able to respond. Um, but even though Mead didn't directly identify as a feminist, which some think rooted back to her childhood rebellion against her mother, uh, she definitely got it. I mean, she publicly dismantled the idea that feminists have penis envy or just want to be men, but rather that we are striving to access cultural privileges exclusively offered or at least made far more accessible to men. And she understood conflicting demands to be a homemaker, a child rearer, an income earner, and would encourage social networks and support for working moms. I mean, and she, and she really did, especially later in her life, become very outspoken about gender equality and women's rights. Yeah, and in terms of the sexual revolution, though, it's not surprising that the author of Coming of Age in Samoa, which focuses a lot on sexual roles and sexual behavior, should be cited as a vanguard of the sexual revolution in America. And Nancy Lutkehaus, who's the author of Margaret Mead, The Making of an American Icon, wrote that Coming of Age in Samoa was considered to exhibit the new attitude of openness toward the topic of sexuality, as well as to promote the practice of it. And this was reflected, too, somewhat in Mead's personal life and her relationships, because they were quite revolutionary for the time as well. Uh, she once famously said, to paraphrase, that everyone should get married three times, once for leaving home and basically doing it when you're young, once to have kids, and once for companionship. And she also once wrote that, quote, one can love several people and that demonstrative affection has its place in different types of relationships. Yeah, she's got a fascinating... <laughs> I mean, not to sound like I'm gossiping, but she she does have a fascinating background when it comes to her love life because she had deep and lasting relationships with both men and women. For instance, her first marriage was to Luther Cressman, who's a seminarian.
Canadian. They got secretly engaged when she was just 16. They got married when she was 21. But by the time she was 27, they'd gotten divorced. But that wasn't just like one linear story of one person. In between there, she had an affair with this New Zealand man named Rio Fortune, which absolutely sounds like the hero in a romance novel. Uh, and it this, their story sounds like one, too. She met him on her journey to Samoa. They had an affair while she was still married to Cressman, and then they got married after she divorced him. And then, while she was married to Fortune, while they're out doing field work, they meet this dazzling New Zealand anthropologist named Gregory Bateson, and a love triangle ensues for a while, and then she finally ends up ditching Fortune for Bateson, whom she has her daughter Catherine with, and ultimately divorces 15 years later. But, I mean, it really seems like when she talks about Bateson and when you think about their years in Bali together, you know, collecting those tens of thousands of photographs and film, that he was that companion mm-hmm. marriage. I mean, she got the, the kid and the companion in the same the same union. Yeah, but kind of threading through all of this, all of these loves and marriages, is also relationships with women. I mean, when she was at Barnard, she had several love affairs with other female students, and she ended up spending her golden years with fellow anthropologist Rhoda Metro. But there was one woman in particular who was a constant in her life. That's right. Her academic mentor turned long-term lover was Ruth Benedict, Franz Boaz's research assistant. They worked together throughout the years, but there was always this undercurrent of passion. Um, there is a book recently published to cherish the life selected letters of Margaret Mead that really reveal the intensity of the intimacy between these two women that also spanned both of their marriages. Yeah, one line from one of the letters that really struck me was when Margaret wrote, And a day like today, when I've worked from dawn to dusk without stopping, I feel very peaceful, and it is such a joy to go to sleep loving you, loving you, and waken so. So, anthropologist or not, she remained a poet throughout her life, especially in her passionate love letters to Ruth. Well, and they it seemed like they corresponded, too, about... A lot of what she wrote about in terms of sexuality and gender roles and like what all of that meant and the idea of monogamy and restrictiveness, because, I mean, it it so clearly did not fit with her personal desires Mm -hmm. and experience. Yeah. And I think it was in a letter that she wrote when she was basically on her way to go marry Rio Fortune. Oh, Rio. Oh, Rio. Uh, I was about to start singing that song. Um where she basically is talking to Ruth about how silly and almost arbitrary the straight versus gay, heterosexual versus homosexual, man and woman and woman and man distinctions are, and that everyone, she she writes, has the capacity to love and be attracted to everyone else, which is something that, you know, definitely was not a common way of thinking at the time. And one thing that didn't come up in what we read about Margaret Mead, although I'm I'm sure it's out there if we look at more in-depth biographies of her, is how her personal life, and especially getting divorced and remarried a number of times like she did, how that, you know, painted or tainted the public's perception of her Mm -hmm. and her work. Because she was 
one of the only female academics at such a high level and it, with such, you know, renown. And, and I wonder if, you know, as is often the case, um, if her personal life ever, you know, attempted to be used against her. I don't know. And I mean, before we came in to record, I asked Kristen why she thought that Margaret Mead even bothered getting married. And that's not to say that she wasn't attracted to men and didn't love these men that she married. But if her love for Ruth was so, like, spiritually enriching and deeply overwhelming, I mean, why not just either not marry the men or or live with Ruth or something. And I don't have the answer to that. Well, I think it's partially, too, because it, it seems like she could be in love with multiple people at the same time, mm-hmm. too. You know, so it was never just a question of a singular love yeah. for her. Um, now, certainly, though, we should note that her relationships with women would not have been in the public eye because, like, those letters written to Ruth weren't publicly released until 2001. Yeah. So that wouldn't have caused any scandal at the time. But what did cause a scandal was, you know, some, some consternation about her research methods, accusations of her fitting results to suit her hypotheses, inserting herself too much in her subjects' lives, and really just being a cultural determinist to a fault. Yeah, and a lot of people then, and some now, take issue with her spelling out how different cultures' ways of doing things could apply to Western society, too. There was basically the finger-wagging of, like, no, you just need to observe and make your notes and write your book and then don't extrapolate any of those things. Don't basically write the Atlantic think piece about your own book, Margaret. Well, it reminded me of the, you know, criticisms of, quote-unquote, activist judges. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was very much an activist academic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of her biggest sort of ugliest critics was New Zealand-born anthropologist Derek Freeman. And he was so, I mean, just determined to discredit her to the point where she even met up with him in 1964 to talk about some of his concerns around her methodology and results. But he was so determined to sort of tear her down and and show her to be a fraud that his books about her sort of overtook Mead's own contributions to anthropology. People started to take what Freeman wrote as gospel. Yeah, I mean, it really did seem like it became his life goal to take down Margaret Mead because, you know, that meeting between them was in 1964 and the Library of Congress even has correspondence that she wrote to him, you know, following up on some of his you know, questions about her methods and it wasn't until 1983, though, years after she had died, talk about kicking someone while they're down, uh, that he publishes through Harvard University Press, Margaret Mead and Samoa, the making and unmaking of an anthropological myth. Yeah, and so he discredits her interviews with two Samoan girls who had discussed their sexual activity and Freeman basically said, you were duped. These girls were pulling your leg. They were just teasing. But the way that he pursued his research was to have one of these women's sons, who was a staunch Christian, interview his now Christian mother 
in order to, you know, supposedly, quote unquote, correct Mead's blasphemous uh, and awfully and terribly controversially sexy uh, interviews with his mom. It was too sexy, mother. It's too sexy. It was simply too sexy. Well, that was the thing. He told his mom that the purpose of the interview was to, you know, correct this major insult that uh, was manifest in that book. So, more recently, UC Boulder anthropologist Paul Shankman painstakingly reviewed Mead's notes and Derek Freeman's research and righted the record in 2009's The Trashing of Margaret Mead, Anatomy of an Anthropological Controversy. And also, uh, he published a follow-up 2011 analysis that only provided more evidence in favor of Mead. Yeah, so basically he points out that this Freeman guy had interviewed entirely different groups of people from entirely different villages in Samoa and points out like, hey, it's not like the same village culture in each place. Like everybody's different. They, you know, so interviewing different people 20 years later isn't going to produce the same results that Margaret Mead found necessarily, especially if you're interviewing an entirely different village. He also points out that Freeman used to contact universities and demand that they revoke his opponent's PhD. So this guy just sounds like a modern day like troll. But he was so successful. Yeah, he really I mean, was. Harvard University Press. Yeah, for sure. And so what Shankman uncovered is that Mead is what Mead really drew on for her conclusions for her book. Yeah. So it was based on interviews with 25 adolescent girls of whom over 40 percent were sexually active. Now, what is true uh, as a piece in the Atlantic talks about, is how in coming of age in Samoa, me definitely downplays some of the uglier aspects of Samoan sexuality and kind of paints it to be like, oh, it's all healthy exploration. Let's not mention things like rape or f- physical punishment if you violate sexual norms, et cetera, et cetera. But she did not completely invent, as Freeman suggested, this idea of you know, a culture where sex was permitted outside the bounds of marriage. Yeah, and you know what she would have said to Freeman? Piffle. Piffle. Oh, piffle. Apparently, that was another thing noted in her New York Times obit, was that her typical response to her critics, because she got it, I'm sure, all the time, because when you're a public figure, you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, and just imagine if she lived today, having to like deal with Twitter. My gosh, she would probably just have like an Autobot set up with Opiffle to read, you know, to respond. <laughs> can we do that? We probably can, Caroline. Um, but that would be her her usual response of just like, oh, Piffle, whatever. Just like brushed it off. She was very Jay Z about it. Well, I'm so I'm so grateful that Shankman uncovered this stuff about Freeman because we were really sort of in a dangerous period teetering on believing that all of the stuff that Freeman said was was true, that so many people used his words as uh, proof that Margaret Mead was just some hack. Yeah, I mean, coming of age is by no means a perfect text mm-hmm. in a lot of ways is outdated in anthropology cl- classes today, but... I mean, trying to smear her entire legacy was certainly a bridge too far. Yeah, and so I was fascinated to read Margaret Mead's history, especially the way that her own 
personal life and love and feelings might have influenced her view on the entire world. Yeah, or vice versa. I'm yeah. just I'm just curious to know almost in the same kind of nature nurture kind of way like what came first? All of this research and discovery about, you know, the the role that cultural constructs play mm-hmm. in sex norms and things like that or just her being the original punk. Yeah. So let us know all of your thoughts. Uh, Barnard grads, are you super pumped about one of your most notable women? MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And I bet we have some messages from the Freeman camp coming our way. <laughs> but we have some letters to read to you when we come right back from a quick break. I can admit it. The last thing I want to do after I get off work is wait in line at the grocery store, take all of that stuff home, carry it up the steps to my apartment, and cook a complicated meal. It's all I can do to just get in my stretchy pants once I get home. And plus, it's expensive and unhealthy to get takeout. So what is the right solution? I have to tell you, the right solution is Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers farm-fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your home, allowing you to create healthy, handcrafted meals without going to the grocery store. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron sends you fresh ingredients, perfectly proportioned, making cooking healthy meals really easy and fun. No trips to the store and no waste from all those unused ingredients. Plus, you'll learn to cook with specialty ingredients that are normally hard to find. That's right, Caroline. Blue Apron is perfect for date night, cooking with friends, and they even offer family plans with kid-friendly ingredients. Each balanced meal is five to 700 calories per serving and so tasty you'd never know. Cooking takes about half an hour. Shipping is flexible and free and the menus are always new. You'll never get the same meal twice. So this week on Blue Apron's menu, how does pad kemal with chicken sound? Or if you're a vegetarian, some eggplant parmesan and go meaty with fresh tomato sauce. Mmm, I'm hungry already. So, check out this week's menu and get your first two meals free by going to blueapron.com slash momstuff. Mine and Caroline's treat, really. The first two meals are on stuff mom never told you when you go to blueapron.com slash momstuff. Okay, well, I have a letter from Emma. She says, this is a really belated letter, but I couldn't help but write in after listening to your Chess Queens episode. I was a competitive chess player when I was in elementary school, and your commentary on the not-so-female-friendly world of chess hit home completely. I never participated in any ladies-only chess tournaments, perhaps because I wouldn't have had anyone to play against. I was lucky to have one or two other girls competing in the same tournament as me, both when I competed at the kids' and adult levels. The boys were often very annoyed to be matched against me, and one even went to my dad before a match and asked if he should take it easy on me. Learning chess was such a father-daughter bonding activity for me and my dad. I think he was proud to have a daughter involved and kicking boys' butts at such a male-dominated game, and I think his guidance and support throughout all of it played a huge role in me becoming the feminist I am today. I think wading through the world of competitive chess was my first crash course in sexism and taught me how to fight for what I wanted despite what people assumed I was or was not capable of because I was a girl. I think a lot of what led me to quit was the culture of the game, and I'm certain it keeps a lot of interested and talented women out of it. I'm so glad you covered this topic. I wish I'd heard more women talking about the game when I was in my chess-playing, budding feminist days. 
My dad and I are looking forward to discussing your podcast the next time we see each other. Well, thanks, Emma. So I've got a letter here from Lucia, who wrote, Today at work, I saw the Facebook post about period pride, and I got super excited. I'm from Argentina, and I didn't know about this trend of being more open about your period in the U.S. I work in IT in a huge telecommunications company, so you might imagine most of my coworkers are guys. In addition to that, I work the 12 to 9 shift, and after 6, I'm the only woman in the office. After that hour, work is pretty quiet, so we talk and make jokes a lot. I have this really macho coworker who has a lot of opinions about women and also says awful things. For instance, he's surprised when I'm interested in gaming, programming, and once saw me holding a book and said, Lucia with a book? That's weird. Once we were talking about YouTube channels and one of my coworkers said, you should start one, you're funny. And this guy replied, what would she talk about? And as a joke, I started doing this bit where I'm hosting a YouTube channel about periods. So now, every once in a while, we do a fake YouTube video, and I even have an opening where I say, Hi, I'm Lucia, and today we're talking about periods. And one of the guys hums a jingle from a panty liner commercial. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was a funny story, and after hearing your podcast, maybe I'll launch an actual channel with subtitles so you can enjoy it. Thanks for all the great podcasting and have a wonderful week. And yes, please do that. And when you launch it, send us a link because I want to, A, to hear that jingle and B, to see your fake period show because that is a fantastic idea. So thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your letters and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links so you can learn more about Margaret Mead. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 